This morning from the first letter of John, he writes, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we're walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Did those first three sentences seem redundant to you when he was talking about what we've seen and what we heard? He says it three times in the first three verses. We've seen this. We've heard this. We've touched this. We know this. Why would he keep repeating it over and over again? He's making a point here. He's emphasizing that we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and touched with our hands. For some reason, scholars believe he's arguing with those who are called descetics. There were some in the early Jesus movement that believed that Jesus was not really human, not God in the flesh, but God in the spirit, that it only seemed like Jesus was walking the earth as a human, but it was some kind of apparition or spirit rather than Jesus of Nazareth really being born as a human, walking the earth as a human, teaching and preaching and healing, and then dying. There are those who believed that that was not the case. But this author and the early leaders of the Christian movement rejected the idea of the ascetics. You can make more sense, I think, of what this letter is all about if you understand what they're arguing about even though he doesn't say it specifically but see if it doesn't make more sense to you in context now when he writes we declare to you what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life this life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard. And then he goes on to talk about the proclamation of the good news of God's love. This author is trying to 
be clear with people what early Christian theology is all about, but he's not just trying to win a theological argument. He's also trying to build up the church of gather people together who are followers of Christ and help them to understand what God has done. What did God reveal to us through Jesus of Nazareth becoming Jesus the Christ? Now, we don't know exactly who this letter is written to. So many of our letters and Christian scriptures have personal names or churches or place names. This author just starts out declaring what we know. So it's sort of written to whom it may concern or to anybody who will listen or anybody who wants to know more. And he's beginning to tell them that through fellowship together, through our association with each other, we can come to know God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That is his first point that he leads off with, but he is not finished there. He also wants them to know that in fellowship, they'll have a joy come over them, the joy of Christian life together. It's in verse 4. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, in the Greek, the word that's used in this sentence for translated in this Bible is our can also be translated as your. So it could be so that our joy may be complete or so that your joy may be complete. But either way, this author is saying joy should be a part of the relationship with God and with each other. That joy should be a hallmark of our life together. That joy should be a part of what it means to be a follower of Christ because we're living in light of God's love. But he has even more to say. His third point comes up in verse 5 when he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That God is light. That Christ has come to reveal the light. Christ is the light and reveals the light. And therefore, we can live in the light. We are privileged to hear the good news and be able to follow Christ, to follow the path that he showed us, the path to life abundant and life eternal. We can live that life of love and goodness and truth that Jesus lived while he was on the earth. We can walk behind him. We can follow his footsteps. These confirmands are following in our footsteps even as they're following in the footsteps of Christ. We're trying to be the light for them and for the world. But then there's one more here. His fourth point is, since Christ is revealing God's light, then we can be sure that God is faithful and just. It comes down in verse 9. If you're following along with me, he says, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, good news that God is with us. And even though this author's painting this contrast between light and dark, and he wants us to walk in the light, he says, I know all of us sometimes end up in the dark, but even then God doesn't abandon us. God is still reaching for us, calling us back into the light and ready to forgive us, heal us, restore us, 
set us back on the path to life. Well, these four points that this author makes in these first few verses of this first letter to John are a great description of what we've been trying to teach our confirmands. We want them to know God. We want them to know the joy of the Christian life. We want them to know that Christ is the light and can show them the way to life eternal and life abundant. We want them to know when they stray from the path and fall short, as we all do, that God is still there beckoning him back in to the family of faith and that God's love and grace are extended to them and ready to forgive them of their sins. It's a great outline for basic Christian theology and doctrine. It's also a pretty good description of what we try to do in confirmation in terms of having these students come together to study and worship and pray and fellowship together. They've been meeting since last August. Philip Boone, our director of confirmation, met with these students and their parents and their friends in faith last August to get them started on this every week journey that they've been working on. We do it in a group. We have them study together in a group so that they can experience this fellowship that this author talks about as a secret to what it means to live a Christian life, to be in fellowship with others. In fact, I think it's not too strong to say the Christian experience is one that happens best in community. This author uses his word and says it's in fellowship with one another, with Christ at the center, is the way to joy. If we ask them who the founder of Methodism is, I think they would all be ready to say John Wesley... One of the great things Wesley did when he began to give spiritual guidance to people, when more and more people were coming, he realized he could not meet with all of them individually every week, so he organized them into groups so they could meet together and encourage one another and hold each other accountable for their Christian life. When Jesus started his ministry, what did he do? He first called disciples. He put them together in a group to travel with him to be in ministry with him to the people. Groups, fellowship, association with each other are part and parcel of the Christian life. God has created us as social beings. We need one another to thrive and do our best in this life. John Wesley said it like this. I put it in your outline. There is no such thing as solitary religion. All true religion is social religion. Wesley understood the importance of people meeting together, of people supporting one another and encouraging each other on this Christian walk. If we think about what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? Remember, he said, actually, there's two. First, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, we might think we could do that by ourselves, just love God, but then he makes it clear this is not a solo journey when he says the second is akin to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor is to be in relationship with others. It is necessarily a part of our life as followers of Christ to be in fellowship and association with one another as we walk together on our spiritual journeys. There's an old story 
about an abbot or a father, a leader of those who move to focus on the Christian life, kind of move to the edge of their town or the edge of society to try to live an exemplary Christian life. The abbots were the leaders of those communities. Abbot Anastasius was one of those people. He lived a very austere life, but had one very valuable possession. He had a copy of the scriptures, all the books of the Bible, printed on the finest parchment by a well-known artist, bound beautifully. He read those scriptures every morning as a way to start his day. He had it displayed in his room. One day, one of the monks who was needing some guidance came to him to talk. He spied the expensive book. His greed was kind of overtaking him. And as the abbot left and he gathered his things, he just happened to gather up the book and take it with him. The next morning, the abbot got up to read the scripture as he did every morning and realized the book was gone. He knew the wayward monk had taken it. He said, I thought about going after him, but I didn't want to catch him. And I think what would happen is he would just add lying to his sin of theft, and then I would be multiplying his sins. So I just said a prayer and went on about my day. About the same time, the monk was in the marketplace looking for someone who might buy the book. He finally found a book dealer that was interested. He showed him the book. The man looked at it and was interested, but he said, I must take it to an expert to verify what it's worth. The monk said he could wait. The man took it to his friend, an expert. His name was Abbot Anastasius. <laughs> he showed him the book. He said, oh my, that is a fine book. It's worth many shekels. The buyer said, okay, and hurried back to the marketplace. And in there was the monk. He said, all right, I've shown it to my friend, an expert. He says it's worth a lot. Let's make a deal. I showed it to Abbot Anastasius. And the man was taken aback. He said, what did he say? Oh, he said it's a very fine book. What else did he say? He didn't say anything else. All of a sudden, the monk said, I don't want to sell it picked up the book and walked away. Before very long, he was walking back to where the abbot lived. As he saw him, he ran up to him, handed him the book with tears in his eyes, fell to his knees and begged for forgiveness. The abbot took him by the arm and had him stand again and said, no need to beg for forgiveness. I will give you the book it will be my gift to you. The story says that the monk stayed with Abbot Anastasius and the brothers for the rest of his life. That story helps us understand the role of community as we grow in faith, but also the power of forgiveness that makes it possible for us to stay together and continue as a community even when we make mistakes, even when sin overtakes us. First John, if you read through it, plays on this contrast between light and dark, light and dark. This author understands 
the call to live in the light, but he also understands that we also sometimes stray into the dark. We have both experiences, but he gives us the assurance that God is the one who is faithful and just, and if we will only turn back to God when we realize the error of our ways, that God will always be there for us and will be willing to forgive us. And then in those last couple of verses, he finishes like this by saying, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a reminder that God's grace and love are offered to us all. And when we live with the knowledge of God's gracious initiative, of God's offer of love and grace and fullness of life and forgiveness of sins, when we live in that knowledge, we are living in the light of God's love. In just a moment, the compromands are going to come forward. I hope you'll be reaffirming your faith even as we are helping them confirm their faith. The compromands will come to the altar rail now. I will meet you there.